Section 16 of Jurisprudence. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Jurisprudence by John Salmon. Section 16. Chapter 11. The Kinds of Legal Rights. Part 1. Section 78. Perfect and Imperfect Rights. Recognition by the law in the administration of justice is common to all legal rights and duties, but the purposes and effects of this recognition are different in different cases. All are not recognized to the same end. Hence, a division of rights and duties into two kinds, distinguishable as perfect and imperfect. A perfect right is one which corresponds to a perfect duty, and a perfect duty is one which is not merely recognized by the law, but enforced. A duty is enforceable when an action or other legal proceeding, civil or criminal, will lie for the breach of it, and when judgment will be executed against the defendant, if need be, through the physical force of the state. Enforceability is the general rule. In all ordinary cases, if the law will recognize a right at all, it will not stop short of the last remedy of physical compulsion against him on whom the correlative duty lies. Ought, in the mouth of the law, commonly means must. In all fully developed legal systems, however, there are rights and duties which, though undoubtedly recognized by the law, yet fall short of this typical and perfect form. Examples of such imperfect legal rights are claims barred by lapse of time, claims unenforceable by action, owing to the absence of some special form of legally requisite proof, such as a written document, claims against foreign states or sovereigns, as for interest due on foreign bonds, claims unenforceable by action as exceeding the local limits of a court's jurisdiction, such as claims in respect of foreign land, debts due to an executor from the estate which he administers. In all those cases, the duties and the correlative rights are imperfect. No action will lie for their maintenance, yet they are, for all that, legal rights and legal duties, for they receive recognition from the law. The statute of limitations, for example, does not provide that after a certain time a debt shall become extinct, but merely that no action shall thereafter be brought for its recovery. Lapse of time, therefore, does not destroy the right, but merely reduces it from the rank of one which is perfect to that of one which is imperfect. It remains valid for all purposes, save that of enforcement. In like manner, he from whom a chattel is taken wrongfully and detained for six years loses all right to sue the taker for its recovery. But he does not cease to be the owner of it. Nor is his ownership merely an empty title, for in diverse ways it may lead him, with the assistance of the law, to the possession and enjoyment of his own again. All these cases of imperfect rights are exceptions to the maxim ubi jus ibi remedium. The customary union between the right and the right of action has been for some special reason severed, but the right survives. For what purposes the law will recognize an imperfect right is a question relating to the concrete details of a legal system and cannot be fully discussed here. We may, however, Distinguish the following effects as those of greatest importance and most general application. 1. An imperfect right may be good as a ground of defense, though not as a ground of action. 
I cannot sue on an informal contract, but if money is paid or property delivered to me in pursuance of it, I can successfully defend any claim for its recovery. 2. An imperfect right is sufficient to support any security that has been given for it. A mortgage or pledge remains perfectly valid, although the debt secured by it has ceased to be recoverable by action. But, if the debt is discharged, instead of becoming merely imperfect, the security will disappear along with it. 3. An imperfect right may possess the capacity of becoming perfect. The right of action may not be non-existent, but may be merely dormant. An informal verbal contract may become enforceable by action, by reason of the fact that written evidence of it has since come into existence. In like manner, part payment or acknowledgement will raise once more to the level of a perfect right a debt that has been barred by the lapse of time. Section 79. The Legal Nature of Rights Against the State. A subject may claim rights against the state no less than against another subject. He can institute proceedings against the state for the determination and recognition of those rights in due course of law, and he can obtain judgment in his favor, recognizing their existence or awarding to him compensation for their infringement. But there can be no enforcement of that judgment. What duties the state recognizes as owing by it to its subjects, it fulfills of its own free will and unconstrained good pleasure. The strength of the law is none other than the strength of the state and cannot be turned or used against the state whose strength it is. The rights of the subject against the state are therefore imperfect. They obtained legal recognition, but no legal enforcement. The fact that the element of enforcement is thus absent in the case of rights against the state has induced many writers to deny that these are legal rights at all. But as we have already seen, we need not so narrowly define the term legal right as to include only those claims that are legally enforced. It is equally logical and more convenient to include within the term all those claims that are legally recognized in the administration of justice. All rights against the state are not legal any more than all rights against private persons are legal, but some of them are, those namely which can be sued for in courts of justice, and the existence and limits of which will be judicially determined in accordance with fixed principles of law redress or compensation being awarded for any violation of them. To hold the contrary, and to deny the name of legal right or duty in all cases in which the state is the defendant, is to enter upon a grave conflict with legal and popular speech and thought. In the language of lawyers, as in that of laymen, a contract with the state is as much a source of legal rights and obligations as is a contract between two private persons and the right of the holder of consuls is as much a legal right as is that of a debenture holder in a public company. It is not to the point to say that rights against the state are held at the state's good pleasure and are therefore not legal rights at all, for all other legal rights are in the same position. They are legal rights not because the state is bound to recognize them, but because it does so. Whether rights against the state can properly be termed legal depends simply on whether judicial proceedings in which the state is the defendant are properly included within the administration of justice. For, if they are rightly so included, the principles by which they are governed are true principles of law, in accordance with the definition of law, and the rights defined by these legal principles are true legal rights. 
The boundary line of the administration of justice has been traced in a previous chapter. We there saw sufficient reason for including not only the direct enforcement of justice, but all other judicial functions exercised by courts of justice. This is the ordinary use of the term, and it seems open to no logical objection. Section 80. Positive and Negative Rights In respect of their contents, rights are of two kinds, being either positive or negative. A positive right corresponds to a positive duty, and is a right that he on whom the duty lies shall do some positive act on behalf of the person entitled. A negative right corresponds to a negative duty, and is a right that the person bound shall refrain from some act which would operate to the prejudice of the person entitled. The same distinction exists in the case of wrongs. A positive wrong or wrong of commission is the breach of a negative duty and the violation of a negative right. A negative wrong or wrong of omission is the breach of a positive duty and the infringement of a positive right. A negative right entitles the owner of it to the maintenance of the present position of things. A positive right entitles him to an alteration of this position for his advantage. The former is merely a right not to be harmed. The latter is a right to be positively benefited. The former is a right to retain what one already has. The latter is a right to receive something more than one already has. In the case of a negative right, the interest, which is its de facto basis, is of such a nature that it requires for its adequate maintenance or protection nothing more than the passive acquiescence of other persons. All that is asked by the owner of the interest is to be left alone in the enjoyment of it. In the case of a positive right, on the other hand, the interest is of a less perfect and self-sufficient nature, inasmuch as the person entitled requires for the realization and enjoyment of his right the active assistance of other persons. In the former case, I stand in an immediate and direct relation to the object of my right, and claim from others nothing more than that they shall not interfere between me and it. In the latter case, I stand in immediate and indirect relation to the object, so that I can attain to it only through the active help of others. My right to the money in my pocket is an example of the first class. My right to the money in the pocket of my debtor is an instance of the second. The distinction is one of practical importance. It is much easier, as well as much more necessary, for the law to prevent the infliction of harm than to enforce positive beneficence. Therefore, while liability for hurtful acts of commission is the general rule, liability for acts of omission is the exception. Generally speaking, all men are bound to refrain from all kinds of positive harm, while only some men are bound in some ways actively to confer benefits on others. No one is entitled to do another any manner of hurt, save with special ground of justification, but no one is bound to do another any matter of good, save on special grounds of obligation. Every man has a right against every man that the present position of things shall not be interfered with to his detriment, whilst it is only in particular cases, and for special reasons, that any man has a right against any man that the present position shall be altered for his advantage. I have a right against everyone not to be pushed into the water. If I have a right at all to be pulled out, it is only on special grounds against determinate individuals. Section 81. Real and Personal Rights The distinction between real and personal rights is closely connected but not identical with that between negative and positive rights. It is based on a difference in the incidence of the correlative duties. 
A real right corresponds to a duty imposed upon persons in general. A personal right corresponds to a duty imposed upon determinate individuals. A real right is available against the world at large. A personal right is available only against particular persons. The distinction is one of great prominence in the law, and we may take the following as illustration of it. My right to the peaceable occupation of my farm is a real right, for all the world is under a duty towards me not to interfere with it. But if I grant a lease of the farm to a tenant, my right to receive the rent from him is personal, for it avails exclusively against the tenant himself. For the same reason, my right to possession and use of the money in my purse is real, but my right to receive money from someone who owes it to me is personal. I have a real right against everyone not to be deprived of my liberty or my reputation. I have a personal right to receive compensation from any individual person who has imprisoned or defamed me. I have a real right to the use and occupation of my own house. I have a personal right to receive accommodation at an inn. A real right, then, is an interest protected against the world at large. A personal right is an interest protected solely against determinate individuals. The distinction is clearly one of importance. The law confers upon me a greater advantage in protecting my interest against all persons than in protecting them only against one or two. The right of a patentee who has a monopoly as against all the world is much more valuable than the right of him who purchases the goodwill of a business and is protected only against the competition of his vendor. If I buy a chattel, it is an important question whether my interest in it is forthwith protected against everyone or only against him who sells it to me. The main purpose of mortgages and other forms of real security is to supplement the imperfections of a personal right by the superior advantages inherent in a right of the other class. Furthermore, these two kinds of rights are necessarily very different in respect of the modes of their creation and extinction. The indeterminate incidence of the duty, which corresponds to a real right, renders impossible many modes of dealing with it, which are of importance in the case of personal rights. The distinction which we are now considering is closely connected with that between positive and negative rights. All real rights are negative, and most personal rights are positive, though in a few exceptional cases they are negative. It is not difficult to see the reason for this complete or partial coincidence. A real right, available against all other persons, can be nothing more than a right to be left alone by those persons, a right to their passive non-interference. No person can have a legal right to the active assistance of all the world. The only duties, therefore, that can be of general incidence are negative. It may be objected to this that though a private person cannot have a positive right against all other persons, yet the state may have such a right against all its subjects. All persons, for example, may be bound to pay a tax or to send in census returns. Are not these duties of general incidence and yet positive? The truth is, however, that the right of the state in all such cases is personal and not real. The right to receive a tax is not one right, but as many separate rights as there are taxpayers. If I owe ten pounds to the state as income tax, the right of the state against me is just as personal as that of any other creditor, and it does not change its nature because other persons or even all my fellow citizens owe a similar amount on the like account. My debt is not theirs, nor are their debts mine. 
the state has not one real right available against all but an immense number of personal rights each of which avails against a determinate taxpayer on the other hand the rights of the state that no person shall trespass on a piece of crown land is a single interest protected against all the world and is therefore a single real right the unity of a real right consists in the singleness of its subject matter the right of reputation is one right corresponding to an infinite number of duties for the subject matter is one thing belonging to one person and protected against all the world although all real rights are negative it is not equally true that all personal rights are positive this is so indeed in the great majority of cases the merely passive duty of non-interference when it exists at all usually binds all persons in common there are however exceptional cases in which this is not so these exceptional rights which are both negative and personal are usually the product of some agreement by which some particular individual has deprived himself of a liberty which is common to all other persons thus all tradesmen may lawfully compete with each other in the ordinary way of business even though the result of this competition is the ruin of the weaker competitors but in selling to another the goodwill of my business i may lawfully deprive myself of this liberty by an express agreement with the purchaser to that effect he thereby acquires against me a right of exemption from competition and this right is both personal and negative it is a monopoly protected not against the world at large but against a determinate individual such rights belong to an intermediate class of small extent standing between rights which are both real and negative on the one side and those which are both personal and positive on the other in defining a real right as one availing against the world at large it is not meant that the incidence of the correlative duty is absolutely universal but merely that the duty binds persons in general and that if any one is not bound his case is exceptional similarly a personal right is not one available against a single person only but one available against one or more determinate individuals the right of the creditor of a firm is personal though the debt may be due from any number of partners even as so explained however it can scarcely be denied that if intended as an exhaustive classification of all possible cases the distinction between real and personal rights between duties of general and of determinate incidents is logically defective it takes no account of the possibility of a third and intermediate class why should there not be rights available against particular classes of persons as opposed both to the whole community and to persons individually determined for example a right available only against aliens an examination however of the contents of any actual legal system will reveal the fact that duties of this suggested description either do not exist at all or are so exceptional that we are justified in classing them as anomalous as a classification therefore of the rights which actually obtain legal recognition the distinction between real and personal rights may be accepted as valid the distinction between a real and personal right is otherwise expressed by the terms right in rem or in re and right in personam these expressions are derived from the commentators on the civil and canon law literally interpreted use in rem means a right against or in respect of a thing use in personam a right against or in respect of a person in truth however every right is at the same time one in respect of something namely its object 
and against some person, namely the person bound. In other words, every right involves not only a real, but also a personal relation. Yet, although these two relations are necessarily coexistent, their relative prominence and importance are not always the same. In real rights, it is the real relation that stands in the forefront of the juridical conception. Such rights are emphatically and conspicuously in REM. In personal rights, on the other hand, it is the personal relation that forms the predominant factor in the conception. Such rights are before all things in personam. For this difference, there is more than one reason. In the first place, the real right is a relation between the owner and a vague multitude of persons, no one of whom is distinguished from any other. While a personal right is a definite relation between determinate individuals, and the definiteness of this personal relation raises it into prominence. Secondly, the source or title of a real right is commonly to be found in the character of the real relation, while personal right generally derives its origin from the personal relation. In other words, if the law confers upon me a real right, it is commonly because I stand in some special relation to the thing which is the object of the right. If, on the contrary, it confers on me a personal right, it is commonly because I stand in some special relation to the person who is the subject of the correlative duty. If I have a real right in a material object, it is because I made it or found it or first acquired possession of it, or because by transfer or otherwise I have taken the place of someone who did originally stand in some such relation to it. But if I have a personal right to receive money from another, it is commonly because I have made a contract with him, or have come in some other manner to stand in a special relation to him. Each of these reasons tends to advance the importance of the real relation in real rights and that of the personal relation in personal rights. The former are primarily and preeminently in rem, the latter primarily and preeminently in personam. The commonest and most important kind of use in personam is that which has been termed by the civilians and canonists use ad rem. I have a use ad rem when I have a right that some other right shall be transferred to me or otherwise vested in me. Use ad rem is a right to a right. We have already seen in the previous chapter that it is possible for one right to be in this way the subject matter of another. A debt, a contract to assign property, and a promise of marriage are examples of this. It is clear that such a right to a right must be in all cases in personam. The right which is to be transferred, however, the subject matter of the use ad rem, may be either real or personal, though it is more commonly real. I may agree to assign or mortgage a debt, or the benefit of a contract, no less than lands or chattels. An agreement to assign a chattel creates a use ad use in rem. An agreement to assign a debt or contract creates a use ad use in personam. The terms use in rem and use in personam were invented by the commentators on the civil law and are not found in the original sources. The distinction thereby expressed, however, received adequate recognition from the Roman lawyers. They drew a broad line of demarcation between dominium on the one side and obligatio on the other, the former including real and the latter personal rights. Dominium is the relation between the owner of a real right, dominus, and the right so vested in him. Obligatio is the relation between the owner of a personal right, creditor, and the person on whom the correlative duty lies. 
Obligatio, in other words, is the legal bond by which two or more determinate individuals are bound together. Our modern English obligation has lost this specific meaning, and it is applied to any duty, whether it corresponds to a real or a personal right. It is to be noticed, however, that both dominium and obligatio are limited by the Romans to the sphere of what, in the succeeding part of this chapter, we term proprietary rights. A man's right to his personal liberty or reputation, for example, falls neither within the sphere of dominium nor within that of obligatio. The distinction between real and personal rights, on the other hand, is subject to no such limitation. The terms use in rem and use in personam are derived from the Roman terms actio in rem and actio in personam. An actio in rem was an action for the recovery of dominium, one in which the plaintiff claimed that a certain thing belonged to him and ought to be restored or given up to him. An actio in personam was one for the enforcement of an obligatio, one in which the plaintiff claimed the payment of money, the performance of a contract, or the protection of some other personal right vested in him as against the defendant. Naturally enough, the right protected by an actio in rem came to be called use in rem, and a right protected by an actio in personam, use in personam. End of section 16. Recording by Colleen McMahon.